0: Greetings and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm your host, Monica Black. And as you know, our job at New Books in History is to pick out exciting new books that the world needs to know about and interview their authors. And that's what we're going to do today. I have the pleasure this, uh, this fine day of speaking with Ellen Boucher. <music> Greetings and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm your host, Monica Black. And as you know, our job at New Books in History is to pick out exciting new books that the world needs to know about and interview their authors. And that's what we're going to do today. I have the pleasure this uh, this fine day of speaking with Ellen Boucher. Ellen is assistant professor of history at Amherst College. And her book is called Empire's Children, Child Migration, Welfare, and the Decline of the British World, 1869 to 1967 it appeared last year with cambridge university press Uh, i understand that a paperback is in the works which is a good thing because as we know cambridge books are expensive and uh, it has been getting some really really fine reviews so ellen it's great to talk to you thank you for being with us today oh thank you for having me and thanks for plugging the paperback (laughs) (laughs) absolutely absolutely i want to get right into the book so i wonder if uh, i could first ask you please to tell us briefly about its subject And, you know, sort of what is the story that you tell in this book over roughly a 100 year period?
1: Sure. So um, it's actually two stories that I tell. And the first is really just the human story. It's about um, uh, roughly 95,000 children from poor, underprivileged backgrounds, British children, um, who ranged between the ages of about five and 13, who were selected for resettlement in the settler dominions of Canada, Australia, Australia, Uh, Southern Rhodesia and New Zealand um, over this period of time from 1867 to 1967. Um, Sorry, 1869 to 1967. So the book charts the rise and fall of this movement to resettle children in various parts of the empire and looks at the interactions between charities, um, British and settler governments, educators, um, the children themselves and their parents. And so it, it tries to recapture the story of why this policy, which to us now seems very unfamiliar and even somewhat abhorrent, um, once made sense both politically and culturally. Um, And so to tell that story, I also tell a larger story, which is about uh, the changing relationship between Britain and its settler colonies during the late 19th and 20th centuries. So I use the policy to... um, chart the fragmentation of a particular vision of the empire, what was known at the time as uh, the idea of Greater Britain, or sometimes it was called the British world. And this was the idea that the settler territories were um, naturally, even organically connected to Britain through the ties of a shared culture, shared traditions, shared racial makeup, um, and so in this case, the lens of child migration helps me tell this story of how, how and why the belief in a global British culture and a global British race gradually fell apart by the late 20th century. Um, and so the question that really motivated that, that side of the book was, um, how did we get from a point where the various settler regions of the empire Identified first and foremost as British, and it seems very straightforward and perfectly plausible to send a British child from one side of the world to another, um, to the point where we are now, where a place like Canada or Australia identifies as its own separate national culture um, and when, you know, it, it seems politically and culturally unthinkable to take children and transplant them um, in this way
0: yeah absolutely right um you know and 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 i 'll say this, but also you know some of the people who've reviewed the book have said the same thing that um you know as as you know when we study history we 're always confronted with the fact that a thing that seemed really wonderful, just you know a few generations ago or even you know less than that, can later come to appear deplorable, and I often had that. <laughs> I often had that feeling reading your book and some of the people who have reviewed it have. And I think that one of the things that's um, – um, that's, uh, one of the hallmarks of the book, I think, is the sensitivity with which you explore these the, – what you call the human side of of, of this policy. In other words, the, the actual individuals involved in it, the children and their parents often. Um, I wonder if you can – if you can tell us a little bit about yourself now that you've kind of given us a, a, a glimpse into the, into the book's content, I wonder if you can tell us a bit about yourself and how you arrived at this topic and how you researched it, because I gather that that, that involved quite a lot of traveling.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and as you say, you know, it was really important to me to try to not just tell a policy story or a political story, but also to tell the story of changing experiences over time and the ways in which those experiences have affected um, people's memories of their, of their childhoods of growing up in, in various regions of the world. Um, And so I, I, you know, I, I, put together the research plan for the book in order to forefront that aspect, because I I found it to be really important. But in any case, um, I came to the topic. um, uh, Originally, it was my dissertation uh, at Columbia University. And um, like many people, I sort of uh, arrived at my research project haphazardly. I was... (laughs) Uh, in a course trying to find the topic of a seminar paper. I was taking a, a wonderful course with Frank Mort, who's a cultural historian who's now at the University of Manchester, but he was visiting Columbia at the time. And and it was a course on space, sort of space and, and identity within Britain. And so I had this really large framework, and I had to figure out some way of crafting a seminar paper for it. And so I became interested in the idea of, of empire and migration and started looking in that literature and found this footnote to um, child migration and realized that there was this really gripping uh, story here that was fascinating and rich and analytically, um, you know, uh, meaningful. Um, And there, there had been some good work published on it, but, um, but nothing terribly recently. So I started doing some research in that respect and uh, really found that this was a topic that I could, uh, sink my teeth into. And that would also take me to various parts of the world, which was a nice kind of side benefit of <laughs> being yeah. a grad student and having the ability to travel. Um, so I, uh, I began my research uh, in Britain, um, it, primarily in the National Archives and the University of Liverpool that has a wonderful um, collection of social welfare organization archives and um, And uh, I also started doing some oral history uh, with former migrants uh, in the U.K., and from there, uh, through connections that I made among within the community, found that there were many, many more people around the world who were willing to talk to me. So from there, I also went to Australia and uh, worked in a number of collections there—the National Archives, but also the Mitchell Library in Sydney. The National Library has some wonderful material related to child migration, um, and continued um, interviewing people. It was a wonderful way to get to know Australia. I'd never been there before, and. I got to go to all these small towns located across the country, um, to try to find people to interview. And finally, I ended up in South Africa where there's a, a small community of, of former migrants, former child migrants, um, many of them who grew up in, uh, Southern Rhodesia and then left Zimbabwe, um, in the 1980s and 1990s and ended up in South Africa. So, so that was, um, how I pieced together this story, um, and it was a wonderful project because I really got to learn a lot about about Greater Britain by actually experiencing it and traveling around it firsthand.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That that's very interesting. Yeah. I bet uh, that I, I'm sure that did give you a, a different kind of sense. I mean, you were speaking about space and identity, and I, I would think that having had the experience of traveling in the in the, sort of in the footsteps of the people who uh, about whom you were ultimately going to write had some effect on on how you thought about space and empire and identity and all those sorts of things.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, seeing what these places looked like and going to, for instance, um, one of the schools that, um, Was that received child migrants in Australia and being able to be there on the ground and and looking at how the architecture was set up and how the landscaping was structured. It was all very important to get a a real um, understanding of the sorts of um, ways in which this policy uh, used space very explicitly to cultivate a certain understanding of uh, white British identity.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, w- let me ask you this. Why children? I mean, why are children – why do children become the focus – I mean, why children are the focus of the policy is fairly clear. But what, what was it for you that um, – that w- what did you learn over the course of writing the book, doing the research for, and then writing the book? Uh, what did you come to learn about the importance, let's say, of children politically and in other ways?
1: Right. Well, children uh, children have always been an important – sort of category for the political imagination because um, children aren't so much blank slates as they are malleable members of the population, or they're perceived as more malleable than adults who were, for most of the 20th century and and most of the 19th century, seen as much more set in their ways and harder to transform or reform. Mm. Um, Whereas children uh, are really important politically because you can project many different um, realms of possibility onto them. And so um, what I found was that children become this category in which politicians can express numerous ideas about where they see their countries going in the future. Um, And so children come to uh, be this, this really excellent way of sort of molding a national vision, but also a vision of the empire. Um, children, children also appeared to be um, very um, vulnerable to what was thought of at the time as the ravages of poverty and the ravages of, of slum living. Um, and so there was a sentimental attachment to childhood and to children that motivated a lot of concern around rescuing them and transporting them to environments where they would have a better chance in life. Um, So doing this project really brought home to me um, one of the things that uh, many historians within the history of childhood have emphasized, which is that children are just this very important sort of cultural symbol, um, and that that... That symbolic importance um, leads to them to – well, leads to shaping their experiences in a number of, of really important ways.
0: Yeah, that, that really comes through in the book. I mean the fact that children are such a, uh, a very dense kind of symbol. They mean so many different things to different people. I wonder if you could um, tell us a little bit about how the actual resettling idea emerged in the Victorian era. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it it emerged originally out of a number of debates about the effects of industrial poverty on metropolitan British society. Um, so there were a number of reformers in the 1860s, 1870s, who were increasingly concerned about the entrenched, seemingly entrenched problem of slum poverty, and um, especially concerned about whether the ravages of slum poverty were weakening the racial fitness of the population as a whole at a time when um, Britain was expanding its global influence overseas. So in the late 19th century, there seems to be a profound need for healthy food fit young Britons to go out into the empire to serve as soldiers or military officials or um, farmers and settlers. And yet there is the concern that the sort of uh, the base of the population is not producing the healthy fit people that were required for this. Um, And so this, The seeming imperative to spread British stock around the world leads to a discussion about why there is such a seemingly entrenched uh, problem of poverty. And the question is are the poor poor because they are naturally sinful or somehow racially deficient? Or are they poor? Um, because they're stuck in an a environment that is not conducive to cultivating the best and brightest of the population. Um, and the reformers who become involved in child migration are very clearly part of the second explanation. They, they view the slum environment as uh, debilitating towards young people as warping their bodies, as corrupting their minds. And so what they think is the solution is to remove those children from that environment in order to give them a better chance in life to grow up healthy and strong and to transfer them to wholesome environments, which they see as um, primarily located in the in the settler dominions. Um, and so it's, it's part, child migration is really part of a larger discussion about the nature of poverty and how it can be reformed. And rather than invest in reforming um, slum spaces within Britain, um, these particular reformers uh, become very focused on removing the most vulnerable members of that population in order to transform them overseas. So it's a really good example of how the sort of social welfare imagination of the late 19th century is profoundly influenced by this vision of the empire that's grounded in ideas of um, British spaces overseas.
0: Yeah. This spatial theme that we keep coming back to is really interesting. I mean, it's actually something that I didn't think that hard about when I was reading the book, but now more and more I'm thinking about it as we talk and um Obviously, a part of that imagination of that the kind of social welfare mentality of the late 19th century was had something to do with, um, as we know, the idea that something about being cramped in cities or being perceived as being cramped in cities. I don't think we would think about it that way at all anymore, but something about being perceived to be cramped in a city, um, having a negative influence on the body and on the mind, and then the idea of these vast open spaces in places like Canada and Australia, where, you know, um, uh, somehow that appeared literally as a kind of health benefit of its own, just to be in an open, free space that way.
1: Absolutely. And there's a lot of really interesting social mapping that goes on in this period that contrasts the um, very, as you say, cramped or tightly packed nature of slum neighborhoods with these maps of the empire, which are largely blank. And that of course is a complete construction in and of itself, but um, it's a way of juxtaposing this idea that Britain is overly full. It's overly populated, but look, there is this British realm that is overseas that is sort of uh, ripe for settlement and in which there's so much place, a space for people to spread out and to kind of become whatever best self they wanted to become. And so there's this way in which um, the figure of the child as full of possibilities, if you could just shape them in the right way is very closely connected to this image of the empire as full of possibilities that also need to be shaped. And so I was really interested in how the geographic imagination intersected with this imagination about children.
0: Yeah, the the so if if one of the themes that we've if one of the themes that we've hinted at already um consider you know a, a number of times is is the theme of space and the effects of space and on the imagination on bodies et cetera another of the major themes of the book which again you've already sort of mentioned but maybe we can develop it a bit more now is that of race and eugenics of course these spaces that we're talking about were often perceived as or conceived as you know being virtually uh, empty, which of course they were not, but they were perceived that way, and um, race and eugenics uh, plays a number of different roles, evolving, I would say, roles in this book. So there's um, uh, there's a, I would say, if I could sort of break it down this way, there's a period up to the First World War, then there's a period after the First World War when there's a, another kind of sharp break, and then there's another sharp break after 1945. So can you talk a little bit about um about the theme of race and eugenics in this book.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I thought that this was a very interesting angle of the research that I wasn't necessarily looking for when I started working on the project, but then I found all over the um, the, the archives and so really came to influence my thinking in a lot of key ways. But um, doing this research really brought home for me uh, what is a, a very basic idea, but I think um, – still a really important point that ideas about race are highly situated and so um political and cultural definitions of what it meant to be white in this period uh vary tremendously according to where you were in the empire and also what period you're talking about so yes there is a shift from um an a pre world war 1 understanding of uh white racial britishness to a uh, interwar moment and then into a post-war moment. And so what I found is that in the um, late 19th century and into the early 20th century, um, there is a widely shared idea that Britannic, heritage or ethnicity um, was shared throughout the territories. And so what mattered was whether or not your parents were British. Um, it didn't matter if they were born in British in Britain. What mattered was that they were of what was called British stock. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that basically meant that you were considered to be white in the period before the First World War. And that's why it's seen as fairly straightforward to take um, poor children from the Metropolitan Society and send them overseas to a place like Canada or Australia because it's not seen as something that's jarring or introducing a a different element. They're they're all British. Um, But that starts to shift around um, the First World War when there's a wave of um, settler nationalism that begins first to, to show its effects in Canada and then later in Australia. Um, in which uh, Dominion politicians and a number of reformers and, and medical people um, start to define their own local standards of white British white racial fitness in ways that were different from how they were being thought about in Britain. Um, and so while British reformers continue to say, you know into the interwar period and, and really into the, the post World War II period, that any British child could be remade into an ideal imperial citizen. Um, Increasingly, their their counterparts in the Dominions are skeptical about this. Um, And they're setting standards of racial fitness that are at variance. So what I found, for instance, was Um, children who were cleared medically cleared for emigration within Britain by British doctors. And they'd get on the boat, and uh, a couple of weeks later, they would disembark in Canada, and they would have another medical examination. And suddenly, they were found to be either degenerate or physically unfit, or mentally unhealthy, and sometimes they would be repatriated right away, or sometimes this assessment would only appear a number of uh, months or, or years even later, um, and then they would be sent back to Britain Um uh, at that later period. And so uh, their ideas on the ground in a place like Canada or Australia, they're increasingly being influenced by eugenic understandings of race that don't align with the kinds of um, thinking that are coming out of the UK at this at this same time period. And so that really starts happening around the First World War. It gathers steam in a place like Australia in the nineteen. 19- in the 1930s and um, and then uh, ends up migrating (laughs) into Mm -hmm. uh, a place like Southern Rhodesia where you see the influence of eugenic and racial thinking uh, really in the later 1930s and 1940s.
0: And how were those, how were these, um, how shall I put it? How how was this um, uh, heightened uh, eugenic consciousness? I guess that's what I'll say. Uh, how did that play out differently in different locations? As you, as you pointed out, and, and and of course you're absolutely right about the situatedness of race. What influence did that? Did, did those different situations of race? What influence did each of those situations have on um, ideas of eugenic fitness and uh, ideas about quote unquote racial preservation and things like that?
1: Right. Well, the the case that I think I. Um, I bring out most in the book or the comparison that I bring out most in the book is between Australia and Southern Rhodesia. Um, And here you can see that the, the local concerns, political and cultural concerns of these two emerging um, nations shape the ways in which eugenics and race race is thought about and used in this policy in, in pretty clear ways. Mm -hmm. So in Australia, in the, 1920s and 1930s. There's an increasing concern about the threat of um, Asian expansion, and a lot of politicians are worried about the um, proximity between Australia and countries like Japan and China, which seem to be quite overpopulated and there's, and uh, aggressively expansionist. And there is a, a rhetoric around the um, um, the movement of Asians out into Australia and i concern that they will be sort of swamped by this other race. And so what Australian politicians really want are to have British um, settlers coming into the country to settle on sparsely populated parts of the Australian territory and to cultivate that land so that they can be a, a bulwark against the threat of Asian expansion. Um, and so what happens though, is that um, Australian notions of the ideal settler become increasingly shaped by uh, a strong eugenic movement within the country. And so um a number of medical doctors and reformers start to set standards of who, of how um, eugenically fit the incoming migrants must be, and they they come up with these arbitrary standards. Like, for instance, they have to have an IQ of over a hundred points, um, and they need to have a body that's. Uh, Strong, and they can't have a squint or a stammer because that might indicate that they have some sort of mental imbalance. Uh, if they're a child, they can't ha- demonstrate loneliness or depression or bedwetting. I mean, all of these things that to us now seem to be quite arbitrary, but at the time were seen as ways of protecting um, the Australian population and ensuring that all of the migrants coming in were as strong and healthy and had as much potential as possible. Um And so that's how the the discourse sort of develops in Australia. If you go to Rhodesia, the concern was very different. I mean, there they have already a a, a large African population. They're outnumbered 21 by Africans. And the... Rhodesian settler minority wants to ensure that it can maintain its hierarchy, that it can maintain its leadership of the com- of the colony in the face of this um, demographic imbalance, um, and so there they want to bring in uh, young. Um, settlers who are going to be um, not just farmers developing the countryside, they want them to be the leaders of the colony and the managers, the administrators, uh, the officials. And so there they develop a a different strain of thinking about race. Um, They certainly want white people first and foremost, but they want to make sure that they demonstrate the sort of class specific understandings of um, leadership uh, in order to uh, sort of cultivate the white population and make sure that it's going to maintain its control of the territory. And so they're they're much more concerned with um, the psychological background of child migrants, and they want to make sure that they come from good homes, that they haven't had any um, lasting traumas in their childhood, that they haven't Um, been subject to extremes of poverty um, because they don't want to import what they call an underclass who would Mm. not be able to lead the African population. They want to incorporate people who are going to be more middle class or even elite. And so they use uh, just different standards of recruitment and racial fitness. There they have a much higher IQ that they look for within children. They also use social workers to try to ensure to interview the children and their families, try to ensure that they're going to be um, uh, this higher class that's stock of people. Um, and so it's just, it's just very interesting to think about the ways in which these local concerns, these local political concerns, shape the ways in which race is thought about and, um,
0: and end up influencing the polity, policy in this very distinct ways. Yes, it's very interesting how in 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 the different contexts that you examine—Southern Rhodesia, Canada, Australia—the way that race and gender uh, and class, particularly race and class—I would say. Um, Come together in very, in very different ways in each of those, uh, in each of those different situations. I, I thought that was one of the really, um, revealing things about, about the book. I wonder if we can, if we can, and now maybe change directions a little bit in the conversation and talk. We've talked, um, quite a lot about the policy, policies, uh, that were developed around the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, well, the child migrant policy and the various kind of attendant ideas that, that made it that made it up. Um, I wonder if we can now maybe shift gears a little bit and talk about um, the experiences of some of the people who were the targets of this policy, and um, some of the children who actually, you know, became child migrants. You have, I think, my favorite chapter in the book is the one that is called, I think it's called, Crafting Australians, and because I think one of the reasons that I liked it especially was because you were able to show quite a lot, in a, quite a lot of good detail, how children lived in Australia, what kinds of expectations um, the sort of the people sort of instituting the policy on the ground had for the children, what kinds of activities they wanted them to be involved in to sort of build up their, you know, young bodies and their attitudes towards whatever it was that they wanted their attitudes, um, whatever sort of direction they wanted their thinking to be built up in. And so I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, about those, maybe using the Australian children as an example, maybe talk about what it was like for those kids to be child migrants and and what sorts of experiences they had.
1: Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, a really interesting part of this story is the way in which um, the the setting and the pedagogy for children was structured in very explicit ways, but also the ways in which children responded to that structuring mm. and how they found their own avenues for rebellion or resistance or just being their own people within this, this framework, which is very highly constructed. Yeah. Um, so in Australia, as I said before, the the goal is to get Young, malleable people into the country so that they can go work in rural spaces and that they can become farmers and cultivate the land. So, they want to plant sort of British children across the country um, and send them to very remote places. Um, And, but it's a problem because how do you take children who have been raised in an urban setting, who've only known city life, and turn them into these farmers by the age of the school leaving age of 14. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what the the policymakers decide to do is to create this farm school model um, where children would grow up on a farm in this collective environment. They would be placed in um, little what were called cottage homes, um, but they're really small dorms between uh, they'd have about 12 to 14 children living in this home together under the direction it was of what was called a cottage mother or matron. Um, and their whole day would be structured around um, allowing them to appreciate the benefits of rural living. Um, so they'd go and attend a local primary school in the mornings. Um, and in the afternoons, they would spend their time out on the farm, working in the fields, doing chores around the house. Um, you know, girls would plant and weed the garden. They'd tend the chickens. Um, they would do a range of domestic chores that were intended to sort of teach them the skills that they would need when they go out into the world and become farmers' wives. Uh, boys would um, go and do heavier work around the farm. They'd plow, they'd um, milk cows. Um, and things like that. Um, and then at the ages between 12 and 14, they'd enter a training program that was, that was designed to give them the skills that they would need to become independent farmers in their, um, future lives. Um, and so there they would stop going to school and they would, um, dedicate their entire day to various aspects of training, working, um, They'd have rotations where they'd work on the fields for a few weeks, and then they'd work in the dairy for a few weeks, and then they might work in the the bakery for a few weeks. So it's all very, very um, constructed. But what I found very interesting about this is that, on the one hand, the intent is to uh, give children the skills to be independent farmers Mm -hmm. so that they could grow up and own their own farms and and set themselves up on the land. That's the long-term goal. But the short-term goal is that at the age of between 14 and 16, they're going to be placed out in very remote farms where they're going to be working in menial positions as farm hands or farm servants. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you can't give a a 14-year-old his own farm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's going to be a period where they're just going to be working out on the land on their own and sort of developing their their career, um, and so in order to get that short term goal realized, they also had to teach these children how to be very um, really um, submissive, or at least um, to uh, be willing to take on very difficult. Jobs in very remote settings that were often very lonely and that were extremely poorly paid. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially in the 1930s, um, at the height of the Depression, there's a lot of um, antagonism towards the idea that British children will be coming in and taking jobs away from a locally born Australian children. And so the way they, they solve or they... Um, They fight back against that hostility is to to say, well, they're taking these very low paid jobs um, that many Australian children don't want. And the reason why many Australian children don't want them is because Australian children want to be close to their families. And they say, well, these children don't have any families, Mm -hmm. so we can send them out into the more remote areas. And so there's this real... Tension in terms of how um, the children are raised. They're, they want to, on the one hand, be independent and self sufficient, but on the other hand, to be uh, really kind of exploited labor. And so within this, you get a range of responses among the former migrants who grew up in this environment, and um, many of them talked really eloquently about how, for them, the most important thing was finding a way to have kind of a culture unto themselves, you know, playing little games um, uh, on their own time that had nothing to do with farming. Mm. And some people talked about the fact that they never wanted to be a farmer, that they (sighs) were sick of cows and they'd never wanted to be around them. And so for them, they lost themselves in books or, you know, they would spend their entire time, um, you know, going on long walks, trying to get away from the, the pressure of becoming a farmer. So it was, it was really interesting to see the ways in which not only this whole, um, uh, framework was structured, uh, to create a certain type of individual, but also how these individuals actually responded to that and try and in many cases resisted that pressure.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, let's, let's move in, in time a little bit forward now uh, to the period just after the second world war, which is a major turning point in your book. Of course, it's a major turning point in a lot of people's books. So it's not that surprising, but one of the things that's interesting about 1945 as a turning point for you has to do with uh, child psychology, changing ideas about how children's minds work. And you talked about, in in the book, you talked about how uh, during World War II, as we know, in a lot of countries, children were evacuated out of cities uh, um, to, to avoid the urban bombing campaigns or in London, for example, the Blitz. They were separated from their families. And after World War II, people... People suddenly, it's a very interesting kind of intersection with your book. People suddenly say, oh, you know, removing children from their families is disastrous. It's horrendous. How can such a thing happen? And then this changes immediately almost the way, uh, or very quickly, the way that people think about the child migration program. So I wonder if you could talk about kind of the child migration program and how it responds to changing ideas about mothers and love and families and child psychology.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, so during the war, as, as you've mentioned, there are these um, evacuations of children and also these um, psychological studies that are intended to understand what impact the separation of children from their families and especially from their mothers would have on their development, their personalities and their mental development. Um, and study these studies are conducted by uh, you know, well known psychologists like Anna Freud and Susan Isaacs and John Bowlby. And the s- consensus that starts to emerge from them is that um, taking children, especially young children, away from their mothers was uh, profoundly debilitating and could lead to long term traumas. That would, um, that were associated with a range of sort of scary um, dangers, like um, uh, higher rates of juvenile delinquency, criminality. um, You know, there's a range of of arguments that are made about the impact of an early separation on a developing child um, emotionally and mentally. Um, And so, in the period after the war, there's a new generation. That en- enters into social work, that is part of the expansion of the welfare state. So many of the the new generation of activists are women, and they come in. They're very much informed by the new psychology that's that's emerging in this period, um, and they start to look at child migration as really out of keeping with the the new knowledge that is coming out of the realm of medicine and science. Um, There is the concept of maternal deprivation, which is an idea that's put forward by um, John Bowlby, um, which basically argues that any period of prolonged separation between a mother and a child in the young years of life would lead to problems of attachment in later Um, in later life um, and that that lack of attachment would manifest itself in a number of of societal um, problems Um, and so that understanding of maternal deprivation in particular informs the ways in which uh, these social workers and um, new generation of officials are are viewing child migration so there's a strong push against the movement that the charities and uh, uh, officials, government officials who are still pro- proponents of the movement, have to respond to in some way. Um, and really, my argument is that this uh, growth of a new understanding of childhood trauma and psychology not only starts to make child emigration seem less palpable or less um, possible in the post-war world, but it also starts to weaken the idea. Of Britannic global unity, um, because even into the 1940s and 1950s, there are British politicians who are arguing that the the settler territories are deeply connected. Uh, th- through these ties of loyalty and heritage and shared belonging with metropolitan British society, and the the new way of thinking about psychology and child development, it really is at odds with that sense of a global race of people. Because now it seems like um, the attachment between uh, or the sense of belonging that develops within uh, particular places, is very, very local. And it's very much tied to the relationship within certain families. And so people as a whole seem to be less um, less malleable and less movable around the world than they were before. And so, yeah, that's, that's the way in which um, child psychology starts to have these larger effects. And really by the 1960s, um, there's there's no way to keep the policy going because it's so hard to recruit children to be, um, child migrants. Families don't want to give them up anymore. Um, and, uh, social workers certainly don't want to sign off on this policy that they see as potentially, uh, having these long-term damaging effects.
0: And so the policy sort of, maybe you could say withers on the vine in the late 1960s.
1: Yeah. I mean, really the, the, the movement itself remains um, strong. There are still people involved in the charities who want to find children to send overseas. Well into the nineteen sixties, mm. but there's just not a population of children that's available to to go overseas anymore.
0: It's very interesting. And then you see, you know, by the end of your book, you're talking about. Uh, you, you get uh, even um, though the policy ends in the late sixties. There's there's a there's a significant epilogue to this story, which is that in the 1980s we see a sudden, uh, I don't know, sudden, but we see a surge of activism and the growth of a kind of memory project, uh, particularly in Australia maybe, um, rooted in some of the former child migrants' sense that their experiences as, as such, and I should point out, and it's one of the really most um, textured parts of the book, I think, is that not all child migrants remember their their experiences as child migrants, negatively, some of them remember their experiences g- with great um, with great fondness. Mm-hmm. But in any case, we we do see in the eighties a kind of memory project growing out of the sense of some child, former child migrants, that their experiences had deprived them of their true, as they saw it, their true identities. Um, some felt like they they didn't know who, quite who they were. Um, I wonder if you can. It's a very tragic thing. I wonder if you can um, talk about some some of the things that contributed to this movement.
1: Yeah. Well, the 1980s is a really important time for reevaluating child migration because the policy sort of withers out in the 1960s. And that is not really talked about until a number of activists start making claims in the 1980s that the – That the policy was abusive, and that the governments, especially of Britain and Australia, need to be um, cognizant of that and acknowledge the sorts of abuses that were um, perpetrated against children and to provide forms of compensation in order to allow former migrants who by that point were in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, some sort of a a way of coming to terms with their experiences. And what I found really interesting is why that happens in the 1980s. Um, And it seems very much connected to a redefining of belonging um, in various parts of the world. So in Britain, there is an adoption rights movement that gains steam um, that starts to argue against the... um, the concept of a closed adoption where a child will be um, sort of uh, adopted away from their birth mother and then uh, there will be no connection between the birth mother and the child after the, the first initial adoption. Um, and there's a movement towards open adoptions in order to give children a clear sense of what their background is really the story of their lives and, and who their birth parents were and to rene- re- regain some sense of, um, contextualization for their early childhood. Um, and that movement is coming at really the same time in Australia and Canada as an Indigenous rights movement mm. that uh, spends a lot of uh, time discussing um, the uh, removal of Indigenous children from their families throughout the 20th century and the really traumatic legacies of those removals. So uh, most notably in Australia, you have the Bringing Them Home report. And uh, which uh, emphasizes the traumas that were created in the stolen generation of, of Aboriginal children who had been forcibly removed from their their families mm. and resettled either in group homes or with white families um, throughout the early to mid um, 20th century. And so both of these movements are articulating forms of belonging that are very much centered on the importance of knowing your Background and knowing who your family is, and and the uh, centrality of those sort of natal connections to um, the uh, emerging sense of self of a person, Um, and so within that you see also this kind of idea of the importance of understanding your background and understanding that connection to your family life also influencing the ways in which child migrants thought about their experiences. And many started to see their um, experiences of removal from their families at a young age as very much on par with this larger sense of trauma of not knowing where you come from. Um, And so many activist groups start to make the, the argument that, what former migrants need to do is have um, um, access to their case history so that they can know who their parents were and maybe go back to the UK and find their, their families or relatives. And there's a really strong sense of urgency, sort of an awareness of the fact that their parents are um, older. Many of them had already died. And so a sense that that, 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 Connection needs to be reformed very quickly before the chance is lost, um, which leads to um, uh, a government response. I mean, it, the response doesn't happen until much later, until the early 2000s, mm. but there is, um, by 2009 and 2010, uh, official apologies that are issued by the British government and the Australian government for their participation in the child migration scheme and um, compensation packages that are created that really facilitate uh, journeys of child migrants back to Britain in this attempt to um, allow them to rekindle some sort of connection with their, with their families.
0: Yes, very, it's very interesting. Um, some smart historian one day is going to write a book about what happened in the 1980s, um, that led to um, heightened uh, interest in, in the in well, I'm trying to think of the right way to put it, but there we see other kinds of, of you know, really crucial memory projects developing in other parts of the world at almost the same time. Um, right. I'm thinking about the sort of global rise of Holocaust consciousness as one example. but it's very interesting the specificities of this particular, uh, of the example that you're talking about of the child migrants, particularly in Australia, and the, the um, uh, both the examples of, of changing attitudes towards adoption and the, the open adoption movement, but also of Aboriginal peoples in, in Australia and the sort of um, the way that, uh, the, that the movement of child migrants to have some acknowledgement of their past and their own identities um, dovetails with or, or actually grows out of those other uh, movements about belonging and memory—I think that's really interesting. You know, um, Ellen, we've taken up an enormous amount of your time, and, and you've spoken so wonderfully and eloquently about your book. And I hope that lots of people will, upon hearing this interview, rush out and purchase it, or at least go and find it at their local library. Um, but since we've taken up a lot of your time, maybe you'll just you know indulge us with one with the answer to one one more burning question, which is: I hear that you have a very interesting. Uh, new book project underway, and I wonder if you would um, tell us just a little bit about that.
1: Oh, sure, sure. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun, um, and it's always nice to get a chance to talk about your research, especially of course. in a more extended way, so thank you very much. Um, so, yes, I'm working on a new project, uh, which is really tangentially related to my work on children. Um, I'm interested in understanding uh, changing Uh, notions of survival within British culture throughout uh, the 20th century. And the main question that I'm asking in this project is, um, as the technologies and experiences of warfare shift over the course of the 20th century, um, from, for instance, the advent of Aerial bombing um, and gas warfare in the uh, World War One period, through the nuclear threat in the Cold War era. How does um, individual and community and societal understandings of survival shift along with those um, the changing nature of, of warfare? Um, so it's a it's a very big project that I'm I'm just beginning, um, but it's a really fascinating project because it leads me into all of these different. Archives, um, to try to piece together a story of how, for instance, um, the notion of survival skills is first, uh, invented in the empire and brought home to Britain, sort of how first aid classes developed and how they get to be um, disseminated within uh, British society, through to debates about hoarding and uh, shelter culture during the Second World War, um, up to sort of the vibrant uh, survivalist community that starts taking shape in um, Britain in the 1970s and 1980s. So so all of these ways I'm thinking through sort of the nature of what it means to survive and how people use sort of an understanding of, of survival um, to get at larger questions about um, citizenship and political belonging and the nature of of the community, the national and local community in the 20th century. Um, so, yeah, we'll see where, where I go from from here. It's still in the early stages, but I'm really excited about it.
0: I think it sounds phenomenal. I think it sounds like a huge topic, but I think it sounds like uh, um, a really, really rich one. And I so I wish you a lot of luck with that. Um, we've been speaking with Ellen Boucher, uh, who teaches history at Amherst College, and she's recently published a book called Empire's Children, Child Emigration Welfare and the Decline of the British World, eighteen sixty nine to nineteen sixty seven, and we've greatly enjoyed talking with her about it today. Ellen, thank you very much, and and uh, and best of luck with everything, especially the new project. Oh well, thank you so much, Monica. Okay, take care.